Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Editor Rachel Mutter. This has been an exciting week, an exciting couple of weeks, actually. Um, and it's been marked by some pretty big events. We're going to talk about a couple of them. Uh, one is the delivery of the first commercial volumes of Atlantic Sapphire's land-based salmon here in the United States. And the other one is the naming of the Interfish Person of the Year, our first woman and our first feed company executive. So let's get started on both of those. I'll frame it a bit. Atlantic Sapphire completed its first commercial harvest earlier this week. Um, it was uh, an expected um, event in many ways, but it was a little bit do or die in a sense that if they would have missed their September deadline, which they've been talking about for a long time, uh, it would have been problematic. It would have been, uh, it would have been some big trouble for the company, probably for their share price. This is according to analysts that we talked to. Um, Atlantic Sapphire celebrated it internally and all over social media. Uh, they got a lot of kudos, a lot of pats on the back about it. And, you know, they should have. I think that was a, uh, a pretty significant milestone uh, for the group and for U.S. aquaculture in general. There's miles to go still, but, uh, but there's, there's been a lot and there's a lot to, uh, to discuss about it. So, Rachel, we'll kick it over to you. Uh, what were your first thoughts about it um, and in particular the reacts from the industry? Yeah, I mean it's yeah. Given their due, as you say, this is uh, they they've hit they've hit deadline. Uh, they had a September deadline, I think, for their first harvest, um, and they I think they hit that with two days to spare. Um, so uh, yeah, that has to be celebrated. Obviously, we don't we don't know how much fish they harvested though. Um, there was no word on that, even though we we asked them about it. Um, they wouldn't say they wouldn't say how much it was. So it could be that it's that it's pretty small volumes, but still they did it. So. Um, I think the interesting thing now, though, is uh, how they how it sells, right? Because we we did a price comparison um, of sort of of Atlantic Sapphire fresh salmon fillets um, in sort of U.S. supermarkets compared to compared to other sort of comparable salmon fillets. Well, obviously not land based, but but net pen salmon fillets, and they're they're pretty high up there on the scale. They're selling at fourteen ninety nine a pound. Um, which is quite a lot. It's it's a lot more than a lot of the supermarkets are selling. Walmart, for example, sells its Atlantic salmon fillets, fresh Atlantic salmon fillets, at seven eighty four. So it's it's nearing double the price um, of that fish. And, and I'm assuming that Walmart fish has been frozen beforehand and then then defrosted. So it's it's not the same product. Um, but whether consumers understand that, I, I've no idea. And I, I think my my first feeling was sort of feeling of slight anxiety because. <laughs> it seems to me like the work is actually just beginning um, for them. You know, they, they've plowed in all this money. They've um, taken out loans. They've listed. Um, and but but yeah, but this is the point. This is the point where they really have to prove prove themselves and prove they know what they're doing, because if it doesn't sell, it, none of it matters. OK, well, John, what do you think about this big birthday? Well, I mean, birthday is right. It had all the drama of uh, having a child, for heaven's sakes. It's been months and months and months. But I will say, 
they hit their deadline um, down to the wire, but that's okay. And I think it it's a it's a pretty promising thing. I mean, none none of the land based guys have the horsepower that they do right now, and it looks like uh, you know they pulled off what they were supposed to pull off. Granted, I agree with Rachel. It it could be you know a hundred fish. It could be. 300 we have no idea they didn't say and i thought that was odd because so much of what has to be said when you talk about these land-based things is how much they're going to produce everybody's telling you we're going to produce this 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 so that number is really critical in almost every conversation you hear yet it was omitted from this landmark conversation i found that a little odd the second thing i i'm thinking about right now is along the lines of what Rachel was saying on the prices, how are retailers going to market this? How are they going to take some, you know, average ding-dong consumer walking through the door and quickly tell them this product's worth, you know, $6 more a pound because it was a fish raised on land. I think they'll do it ultimately, but that's a, that's a, big marketing merchandising challenge to me but maybe they've figured it out already what do i know yeah i, I you know i guess my first initial thoughts on it um was uh were um you know the the price i thought um in contrast to you rachel i thought it was going to be higher than that um i thought that they'd done a lot of um priming the pump for the industry um, built up a lot of expectations, and you know, I yes, that's a that's a good price in the U.S. market for a, a fresh product. But um, you know, we'll we'll know it. I think you you went around and looked at some of the retail sales prices for um, fresh salmon, um, and Faroese fresh salmon sells for uh, for more per pound at Giant Eagle, I believe, um, and certainly wild salmon in season, and even even. Uh, even um, you know thawed from frozen um, can sometimes sell it around that level too. So I didn't particularly see it as a big premium. And once the fish kind of cycles through the case, um, yeah, I wonder if consumers are going to feel that they have that they've had something special. And so I'm. It'll be interesting to find out how they ended up setting that price, how they settled on that price. Um, and if indeed, um, certainly the, you know, the, the price, uh, was given by the CEO, Johan Andreasen, CEO and co-founder, um, to us. And so it's, it's not up to him ultimately what the retailers sell it for. Um, so whether it's new seasons market, which I believe is getting their first fish here toward the end of next week or, uh, soon within the coming days, how they price it will be completely up to them. But I guess my feeling is um, if you walk into a Whole Foods, if you walk into a New Seasons market, which for those of you that don't know, I guess I put it kind of on a, an M&S Waitrose type um, positioning, but on a very small scale. Um, if you walk in there, um, is it something that you're going to be attracted by and, and, and remember it? And so, John, I think you're you're... Um, your point about merchandising is so critical because um, in terms of point of sale materials, what's going to be there, um, 
the retailers that they are striking relationships with um, so far seem like um, people that do know how to merchandise. But then again, I guess I felt a little bit more. Hmm, I thought maybe they would have uh, they would have been able to list a few more of these um, really really premium retailers. Um, you know, they didn't mention Whole Foods. Um, there's some of these other uh, smaller ones like New Seasons that. Um, that that would have been interesting for them to be in. Um, so it was a nice spread on the one hand, but on another hand, um, you know, I, there is a danger that just 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 gets sucked into uh, the the um, the flood of other uh, fresh salmon there on the market. Yeah, and you know, New Seasons is in Oregon, right? So I'm thinking, isn't one of the ideas behind this is you can drive it to close by markets? I mean, they're not trucking fresh salmon across the United States, are they? Yeah, and I think the timing of this is really interesting as well, isn't it, with the food service industry being decimated? Because one would think that's where Sapphire could could maybe do better, is when it's plated really nicely at a really nice restaurant um, where the server can can go through his or her um, his or her spiel about where the, the fish is from and how it was raised. So that may be something that, um, you know, factored into the buyers that they have chosen to go with. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, I think it, it's, it's a good first trial balloon. Um, John, you're kind of up to your neck in research right now on the land-based uh, salmon farming industry. You're working on a report on it that's coming out pretty soon in a few weeks. Um, how important was, was Sapphire, was this first harvest and just Sapphire in general to, uh, everybody else that's trying to to get money to get their projects up and running. Yeah, I mean it's bedrock. It's bedrock to the entire land based um, sector right now. Everybody is going. At least analysts, and investors, and you know the people with the money right now are judging um, how much further to go in in this sector, depending on what they see out of Sapphire. So. You know, I, I, in one way, I kind of feel for Johan because the weight of the entire uh, sector is is on his company's shoulders. But on the other hand, he's a first mover, and that's uh, that gives him an advantage um, over a lot of these guys who probably won't have any fish out of the water for you know a year or two. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is the one everybody's watching and. I think in one of the stories that we had up this week, one of the analysts said, and you referenced it early on, Drew, it was a do-or-die moment for them. If they had not hit that that mark, um, you know, things potentially start to unravel. But uh, we're not there. They hit it. And now, what they say, a 1,000 pounds a week is what they're shooting for? Uh, no, a thousand metric tons, I think by the end of the year, something a little bit, um, above that I'd have to check, but, um, but there will be weekly deliveries. Um, the interim CFO, uh, Carl Oyston, uh, Oyahog, uh, told me that. So it's, it's now I think about consistent delivery. Um, and I think ultimately it's, uh, it is going to be about the taste. Let's not forget that that, um, that is looming over the land-based sector. Um, depending on who you ask, some say it's solved. Some say it's not a uh, not that big of a deal. Some say it's uh, it's actually a nice flavor. 
Um, let's see when consumers eat it. That's ultimately, and I think I think John, you've said this in the past, but the the ultimate uh, the ultimate proof is going to be in the in the uh, in the tasting, right? And it's going to be. Um, it doesn't matter how sustainable or how great the story is or, or how hard uh, these entrepreneurs have worked to get this up and running. Uh, ultimately, it's a food and it's got to taste good. Well, and, you know, the other thing is, and let, let's hope this doesn't happen, but if they were to have some sort of production event um, that interrupted production uh, you know a die-off again like they or a emergency harvest like they had to do um that will be looked at quite differently than say maui has to call a pen because of isa or so and and that happens to the net pen guys all the time there's algae blooms and everything else and they they take a little hit from that you know for uh, in the short term but in the end, it's kind of seen now as, yeah, you know, it's kind of the the part of the business, and they're trying to solve those problems, and they're making a lot of progress, and that's that's okay on that side. But if a similar interruption happens um, for the land-based guys, in this case, Sapphire, that has a whole nother meaning and a whole nother set of implications on. You know, like we were saying before, investor outlooks, uh, the industry or the sector itself. So, you know, I, that makes me a little nervous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you, John, because, you know, everything just changed for them in harvesting their first fish. And now, I mean, the spotlight's been on them, I guess, from the industry for, for a long time. But now the spotlight is on them from you know, from from a retail perspective, from a from people who they've promised supply to, or you know, so now if something happens, absolutely, it's it's a whole different story. You know, they have to be part of that. Part of their sell is that it's sort of consistent supply and um, close to market. And and if they can't deliver that, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 quite um, that's quite bad. So yeah, I'm with you. It sort of makes me feel a bit anxious for them, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, but I hope it goes well. Well, think about the capital, uh, the the capital investment that they put into this uh, to this facility. They can't just simply pull out. Uh, that's something that um, you know, net pen farmers and conventional farmers they can do. Like you say, John, they can uh, follow a site. They can uh, you know they they can they can do things to uh, adjust their production. All the eggs are in one basket here with the Atlantic Sapphire. So they have to make it work right there in Miami. Um, you know, one thing that I thought was different and um, I, I think is actually a positive thing is in the follow-ups that we did uh, on, the, uh, on the first harvest, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what you two think, but there was definitely a tone among the analysts that was a little bit more combative. Um, maybe combative is not the right word. A little more skeptical than there has been in, in the past. Um, and I like that. And the reason I like that is, you know, this is a big, big company with the high market cap. The people that are investing in it are taking a pretty substantial risk. Um, Atlantic Sapphire has, uh, um, delayed on uh, on their timing, um, construction costs overrun have been significant. So, 
I think investors are really, you know, they expect now, okay, we've stuck with you. We've given you a lot of money. Um, DNB has given Atlantic Sapphire a lot of money. Um, and so I think now there's a feeling that, okay, it is now time to deliver. It's time to produce fish. It's time to deliver them um, fresh to market consistently, just like we would expect any other fresh farm salmon to be delivered. But I'm curious if you got that sense in in uh, in, in reading the story and and um, you know what the analysts had to say about about the first harvest. Yeah, I'll I'll just jump in. I mean, it felt like um, a parent with with a child that you know you have that uh, conversation at some point when they're. Uh, older teenager where you tell them okay it's time to grow up you know it kind of <laughs> had that it kind of had that tone to me there there were there was a demand uh, implicit in it I thought I don't know Rachel did you get that or oh yeah completely I, I, and I think it was sort of it was partly sort of trying to quell this um, sort of over excitement almost at, at, at the first harvest because it's 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 significant I suppose technically but it's not actually, but but there's more. There's more significant things to come, and I think that was the sort of general feeling I got from from the analysts um, that that we spoke to. Yeah, that like this isn't you know this isn't the end of the this isn't the end of the story. This isn't this is the beginning of the story. So let's all calm down and focus on the massive amounts of work that still that still need to be done. Yeah, and fair or not, um, you know, as I said earlier, all these. Companies that are um, that are IPOing or um, say they're going to IPO or looking for money or announcing these big project plans, there is no proof of concept on any scale um, that they can point to. There there are smaller proofs of concept, uh, including Atlantic Sapphire's Danish operation and um, you know larger uh you know post smolt facilities where they're where they're growing larger 500 gram smolt or even larger than that but you know th- there's really not anybody who has done it to to the scale that Atlantic Sapphire is trying to do it so a lot as we said a lot hinges on them being able to do this in the right way um and so not only does that create an expectation and pressure on on them to to perform well um, for investors, but I also think just the entire industry is really looking at at this and wanting them to make the right moves as well. Because, you know, frankly, if Atlantic Sapphire every time there's a uh, an emergency harvest or some kind of die off, um, first off, you're public publicly listed, so quarter to quarter, investors can get very very jittery about that. Um, and so far they've hung in there, but mm, let's see when there's future problems and there will be. Um, and the other thing is for all those other people wanting to raise that money, they know that investors are looking at Sapphire and thinking, okay, you know, we, we see that they had this emergency harvest. Would that happen with, you know, whoever, uh, Nordic Aqua Farms, would that happen with whole oceans? You know, everybody is, is now wondering all these uh, all these concepts that have been on paper and all these spreadsheets looking at what kinds of money could be made and what the cost analysis uh, is for it and the projection for revenue, that's all been completely speculative. Um, and so it, it is, it, there's a lot of pressure on Sapphire. And I, I um, you know, I admire that they've pushed through and done it, but 
um, again, the risk and the, and the challenge of being the first mover is that, um, you know, you got a lot of people cheering for you and a lot of pressure on you and a lot of people cheering for you to, to fail. And, um, and I, I will say that I think the conventional salmon farming industry, I'm not saying they're hoping that Sapphire will fail, but I think there's still a, a tremendous amount of skepticism and cynicism about maybe the in- excitement that's been generated by land-based salmon farming um, and how, you know, it's really started to eclipse um, conventional salmon farming and the sustainability gains that they've been making in terms of outside of the industry. Um, and, and that has to be maybe a little bit galling. And I think you've seen that with, um, you know, uh, Cermax CEO, um, Guy Mulvick had a, a comment about that and, you know, I think in private conversations, um, when people are off the record, they'll they'll tell you that mm, they they don't believe this is this is going to be near what everyone thinks it is. Um, so I don't know. There's a lot of lot of moving pieces. Yeah, I find that kind of disingenuous, right? So here here's what I think about that. Yes, publicly, the, a lot of them have come out and basically dismissed it or you know, kind of talk bad about it, right? Yet they, they're they using that technology to raise the smolts to bigger size. The only thing they're not doing is taking it to grow out. Okay, yes, that's a big step. I, I understand that. But they're in a no-lose situation because if this takes off, if Sapphire is successful, those regular, those traditional salmon guys have access to so much money they have so much money. <laughs> they can just flip the switch like that and get in that business pretty damn quick is what I'm thinking. So uh, on one hand, you know, they're out there publicly poo-pooing it. On the other hand, I, I have a feeling they're in the back rooms going, okay, let's see what happens if they pull this off. Uh, where are we going to, you know, how are we going <laughs> to activate? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think they're watching very, very carefully. Um, and, and basically Atlantic Sapphire and, and other sort of first movers are, are doing all the work for them. Um, all the, they're having all yeah. the failures. They're, they're having to do all the marketing work. Um, they're having to do the consumer education. And then presumably when they have, that's when, yeah, net pen farmers might decide that, oh, actually, oh, actually, that's not, not such a bad idea after all. Yeah, you're right. You're right. L- little proxy R&D going on for them, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, it's going to be fun to watch, and and like like we said, it's just the very beginning of it. Um, but I did feel like there was a uh, a maturation that happened this week in a, in an interesting way, where uh, I think you said it, John, where it's it's kind of like, okay, you're all grown up now. It's time to you know, it's time to move out and get your own apartment or whatever. Um, so anyway, uh, obviously, we'll keep on top of it because there are new land based projects being announced seemingly every day and we've got, in fact we've got some news queued up um soon about uh a company going public which maybe by the time this reaches your ears uh podcast listener it's already going to be on intrafish but anyway more on that to come so why don't we shift gears and talk a little bit about uh our intrafish person of the year we had our salmon summit uh last week i believe it was and uh, it was a fantastic event. Uh, it was really, really fun to talk to that crew. We actually had Atlantic Sapphire 
uh, on with us and, uh, and several other people that gave us a really interesting view on the whole sector. Um, so, so there's a lot going on still, um, in the, in the salmon industry, uh, and a lot of innovation, a lot of disruption. And, uh, and it was great to, to pick some brains there. Now, one of the things that we did was, uh, as I mentioned, we announced our, uh, person of the year, Rachel, why don't you tell us about the person of the year? Um, you interviewed Teresa Logberyord and um, and uh, and got to to know a little bit about her career and her ambitions. But um, talk a little bit about why we chose Teresa and um, and and kind of what this means for the industry and for her and for Interfish. Yeah, so I, th- I think Teresa really stood out for us in the last year. Um, she has been incredibly vocal um, sort of um, amongst the, the feed industry and also just generally in the aquaculture industry about um, about sustainability. And, and everyone sort of slightly sort of yawns and rolls their eyes when, when you mention sustainability these days. But, but, but her work and Scretting's work has been really pivotal, I think, in driving um, development in the feed sector and the aquaculture sector. Um, she has been very open and frank about where the industry is not meeting expectations, where it's not meeting its goals. Um, you know, you know, the, the industry is very good at sort of setting these goals for itself um, and promoting that it's set these goals for itself. But, but then it can tend to go a little bit quiet on whether it's met those goals. And obviously people, people produce sustainability reports um, and you can read into them, but it's, it's not, out there it's not spoken about so much and I think she really changed that um and sort of got it out there like no we haven't done this no we need to do better on this and you know Squetting and and Utreco their their parent company have sort of plowed investment into research and development into alternatives um and and we felt like she really led the way on that and sort of and opened up a more honest discussion I think about sustainability so that, that was one of the reasons uh that we picked her um there's also other areas that she's been very sort of um, very important in uh, their work in Africa. Scretting's work in Africa has been they're really sort of at the forefront of the feed companies in Africa. Um, and, and Africa is a, is a risky place to operate. Um, it's, it's a very sort of unknown landscape and it's very different um, from anything that, that most of the feed companies operate in. But she's sort of fearlessly gone in there. Um, well, Scretting were already in there. I should make that clear. But she's she's absolutely sort of dived into it um, and really helped develop Scretting in Africa and really helped develop the sector there uh, with various partnerships with with Worldfish uh, and the likes. So, so that's interesting. And and speaking to her, that was something that was very important to her. That was something she was very proud of. Their work in Africa. Um, she sees it as as very important that that countries countries on the African continent are are given the sort of means to develop um, so that they can have a sustainable aquaculture industry. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was interesting. So there's, there's myriad reasons we gave it to her, but I suppose those were the, those were the key ones. You know, I, you're just reminding me, Rachel, that um, there was a quote that she gave. I remember that uh, in an interview, this was a few months back, where she said, we are, we are not doing enough. And that's just, as you said, that's not something you hear that often. You hear, um, you hear companies, this is not just seafood, this is everybody. You hear companies talking about what they're doing right and talking about their achievements, however small they are. They want to talk about these, uh, these, these, um, you know, these, um, milestones they hit. And, And that's great. That's important. 
But I really um, thought, as you said, that her uh, drive and her push and leadership of Scredding um, has really not been about talking about how great they are, but talking about how much still needs to be done. Um, I think the feed sector, um, what's always heartening is when, you know, uh, rival companies sort of pat one another on the back. So, you know, there it wasn't like Cargill and Biomar were, were angry um, and wrote nasty stuff on social media. In fact, I saw them, uh, the, the top executives, um, congratulating Teresa, as they should, because I think part of it, too, is a recognition of the importance that feed plays in the industry. Um, and you mentioned Africa. And what I find fascinating is oftentimes it is the feed companies that push and, and lead things uh, have traditionally in, in the uh, aquaculture sector. So, you know, let's not forget, Scredding, Nutreco was the forerunner, used to be the owner of um, what is now Movie. And so that company came to be by that nexus of feed and production um, and, and uh, the two playing off one another. And I think that Nutreco has has had a history of that and is showing that that you know you you get into a sector and you take a leadership role there. So you mentioned Africa. Um, Egypt's a great example. Egypt's tilapia sector. Scredding's been very active there. Getting information out of Egypt on their tilapia sector is difficult. Um, and it, it's fragmented. And so having a common cause, common standards, common ideas about what sustainability is, what best practices are, that comes from having a leader. And, you know, Scredding's really played that role uh, in Egypt. And I think the the work that they're doing in Africa shows they have the same intention. And and that's how you can build a sustainable industry is having someone willing to take a risk, um, willing to, yes, finance. Uh, so not just a, a reputational risk, but a, a financial risk. Um, and, uh, and going out and, uh, and trying to build new sectors. So, um, so yeah, I I think it was interesting. Yeah. As you say, I think it's worth pointing out that feed is so pivotal to the success or failure of the aquaculture sector. Um, it's, you know, it's a huge amount of, of any, um, aquaculture producers costs. I mean, it's also a huge amount of their environmental footprint too. So it's, it's, you know, there was there was there was some criticism, I think, from from one quarter about, you know, why are you choosing a feed executive when, you, you know, it's not it's not the seafood industry. It's not a producer. It's not. A, but it, it's, it's so integral. Um, and I think actually that's why it's important that we have picked someone from the feed sector, because I think especially at this point in aquaculture's development, um, the feed, the, the technical um, technicalities of the feed and how fish is fed, you know, is progressing at such a rapid rate and it's becoming it's becoming, you know, very make or break for the success of aquaculture, you know, how effective the feed sector is. So I think actually this was the perfect moment to, to pick a feed executive. And Teresa was, yeah, was the obvious choice. Yeah, uh, she really was. So congrats to Teresa. Um, hey, let's wrap it up. And speaking of feed, uh, later this month on October 22nd, we will be co-hosting a another webinar, a feed event with Biomar. And that's going to be uh, hitting on some of these same themes, Rachel, that you just brought up um, about feeds role in the seafood industry, about how they're pushing sustainability forward um, on things like fish health, on things like novel ingredients, and this increasing relationship between the feed companies and the retailers, which is 
pretty fascinating uh, to watch and uh, and see develop. So uh, join us there. You can register online. It's already open. So you can go to intrafishevents.com and put your name in there. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, we do have uh, a couple reports that are coming out. Our feed report on feed alternatives and feed innovation just came out, uh, I believe, John, isn't that correct, this week? Or was it last week? Uh, last week, I think. All right. So that's out. Um, and that's a, a fascinating report. And then our land-based work is going to be coming out. Uh, that report will be coming out at the end of the month. Uh, in the meantime, you can visit intrafish.com. Uh, we're there 24-7. Uh, we've had a fantastic run of news. It is difficult to keep up with everything that's going on. It is such an exciting time right now in the sector, despite everybody being stranded and distanced from one another. Things are still happening, and this industry, at least, um, is still uh, is still moving forward um, at a rapid pace. So, thank you, everybody. Thanks, John and Rachel, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>